0: Darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Lema sabachthani," which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, at the most poignant moment in Christian history, recognizes the significance of his imminent death with this utter cry of desolation. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is abandoned, if only for a short time, And in this act, all of humanity is offered a new start. A new creation began. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sometimes this is called the prayer of dereliction or the cry of abandonment. In the phrase itself, it's a doozy for many reasons. One, it seems here that Jesus is doubting God. And Jesus and God are the same, right? Therefore, God has forsaken himself If this is true, then Jesus wasn't perfect. If this is true, then Jesus had his doubts. If this is true, then God abandoned Jesus. You can see the ramifications of this. And there's lots of ways to explain away this pain. You could say, well, he's quoting Psalm 22, which is where we first see the phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's showing that he's fulfilling this true prophecy. And on the screen, you'll see a bunch of verses in Psalm 22 that really vividly describes the crucifixion process roughly 900 years before crucifixion is even invented. And so for many followers of Jesus, this takes away the sting of Jesus saying, God, why have you forsaken me? Well, he was quoting scripture. He was predicting this a 1,000 years before. He's not truly feeling a ban by God. He's showing the deep truths of the scriptures. And for many, this line of interpretation um, is great and helpful, and I affirm that. But I do think that there's something else going on here. You see, in the Jewish faith, the Hebrew scriptures are read, memorized, and spoken always in Hebrew, never in the native tongue, never in Aramaic. And yet, Matthew and Mark both make it a point to say that Jesus cried this out in Aramaic. So while his prayer may be inspired by the psalm itself, the words reflect a person who's going through agony, who is feeling a sense of forsakenness by the divine. And to read it otherwise, it'd be, we'd be viewing it as some kind of a cosmic theater right a phrase that provides the whole crucifixion with a sense of drama and despair all the while winking at the audience that everything's okay we've got this under control i think rather we must instead give this cry its full theological and existential weight we must read it with all its horror and potency here right at the heart of christianity god despairs of god god despairs of God. Hebrew says that Jesus was tempted in every way, yet was without sin. So there is no sin in what Jesus is saying here. The only sin on the cross is the sin of all humanity, past, present, and future, that Jesus is bearing. He himself is not committing sin. It's not that Jesus sins by expressing this agony. He's bearing our sin. The atonement of Jesus was not a nice, neat, heavenly transaction. It was a violent, messy act of God's great love for you and I. It's always about relationship. It's about love. As a pastor, there have been times I have shared this moment in Jesus' story, this cry of dereliction. I was a youth pastor for 11 years, and one of the students that I was most close with, was going through a real tough time in his his early 20s. And he was uh, addicted to uh, prescription pills and um, so was his girlfriend at the time. And then she got pregnant. And she got clean because of this. She said, I'm gonna get clean because of this baby. And it took him a little bit longer to get clean. But at the hospital, I was there at, at the hospital when the baby was born and this beautiful baby girl. And to see the look on this student's eyes, was unbelievable joy. I saw something in him. I saw a spark of light. And I left the hospital. And I get to my house, maybe 30 minutes after I visited them, and I get another call from him and his girlfriend, crying in utter desolation. See, moments before, this girlfriend's father came and visited his first granddaughter, and while leaving the hospital was in a car accident that took his life. Joyous birth and life, and at the next moment, death and mourning and utter desolation. And I turned around, and I went back to the hospital, and I prayed with them, and I pointed to Jesus and encouraged them to pray to Jesus, who on the cross felt the same desolation, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He understood darkness and despair because he himself experienced it. What does this mean for us? Number one in your notes is this. Don't censor your prayers. Open your hearts. Don't censor your prayers. It's not wrong to pray complaints to God. He already knows how you're feeling. We should probably just say it anyway. The Bible's full of these kinds of prayers. Read the Psalms. Psalm 6 says this, I am worn out from sobbing. All night I flood my bed with weeping, drenching it with tears. Psalm 10, O Lord, why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide when I'm in trouble? We've all felt that, right? Psalm 13, O Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? It's important to know that King David is praying these prayers. And King David is not ticking God off. It's not like God's up there going you how dare you question me. No, God actually refers to King David as a man after my own heart. He, David is not condemned for these prayers of honesty, God, where are you? Quite the contrary. God wants our honesty. He doesn't want our charade. So, if you feel it, say it. God's big enough to handle it. My wife and I have been married for 11 years, and there are times in life when I'm not in a good mood um, or when I'm wrong. Now, I know that's hard for many of you guys to picture, <laughs> but at times it's true. When I'm upset, Sarah always knows. And she says, What's wrong? And I say, Nothing. And she goes, John, what's wrong? I can tell. And she can tell for a lot of reasons, mostly because I'm more distant. Um, I don't open up and I always use short answers, right? How was work? Good? Did you get a lot done? Yep. <laughs> but when I'm not honest with her, when I say that nothing is wrong or I'm not angry, I'm actually cutting off intimacy with her. I'm not being my true self with her. And when we're not authentic with God, we actually lose intimacy. I think that I'm fooling her, but I'm mistaken. I'm not fooling her. I'm distancing myself from her. And the same is true with the divine. If she can tell, can't God? God knows already. It's not like you have this anger or questions or doubts, and you've got these burning in your soul, these deep questions of God, and then you go to him and go, Gracious Father, I thank thou for all thou plentiful blessings, and God's like, whoa, wow, I'm impressed by you. He already knows that we got big-time questions, and rather than fooling God with a charade, we distance ourselves. Keeping it in might keep us safely within religious credibility, but that is all. In reality, it's a, it's a recipe for lifeless religion, not a life-giving relationship. And that's what God desires. Sometimes we have intellectual questions about God or the Bible, and we think it's unspiritual to entertain those questions. Someone might pose an, a phenomenal question. This person might be of another faith. This person might be an atheist. And they ask a question, and rather than actually entertaining that question, we shut it off and we go... I can't even think about that. Doubt will creep in. Number two on your notes is this. Human reason is not against the life of faith. Human reason is not contrary to God's word. You don't turn off human reason to live the life of faith. God gives us reason. God gives us a brain. We should probably use it. Mark 1230 says this, And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. All your mind. God give us, he gives us intellect. He gives us reason. We should use it. We don't turn it off to follow Him. In eighth grade, I took a biology class, Mr. Vanderwalt. And Mr. Vanderwalt uh, was passionate about the sciences. And then he would go on and explain something. And then an inquisitive student would always raise their hand and say, uh, Why? And then Mr. Vanderwalt would give some kind of explanation that kind of partly supported his conclusion. And uh, then if pressed, he would get agitated because we keep saying, why? Why? Uh, This teacher actually also called students kooks, which I'm pretty sure would get you fired now. But Mr. Vanderwalt would get frustrated and say, just trust me. Just trust me. It's true and just trust me, it's true, never really sat right with me. And for some of you in this room, some of the people that you know and care about, you came to church, and instead of hearing reasons for why we believe what we believe, you just heard a professional holy man stand on the stage and say, just trust me, it's true. And you you got turned off to faith. And your friends and family got turned off to faith. If that's you, There's hope this morning. All truth is God's truth. We shouldn't be afraid of it. I can't tell you how many people I know who uh, were born and raised in a Christian home, and they're taught this is the way the world works, and then they go off to college, and then they start experiencing people and experiencing truth in ways that contradicted some of the things that they grew up with. And so instead of wrestling through that, re-examining that, they throw out the baby with the bathwater and leave Jesus altogether. Because this one thing that I always taught was tr- wasn't true, well, the whole thing must be a lie. The church must be the place where we wrestle with the deepest questions of life. This has got to be the best place for that. If, if you can't wrestle with these kinds of questions here, you're going to wrestle with it some other place that isn't going to point you to Jesus. Check this out. This is a phenomenal passage in Acts 17. The Apostle Paul is discipling this new group of believers in Berea, and this is what the author Luke has to say. Acts 17, 11. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul was saying was true. Interesting. Luke could have written that the Berean Jews were of more noble character because they received the message with great eagerness and trusted everything the Apostle Paul said without question because he was the Lord's anointed. It doesn't say that. It says that they were positive skeptics. It says they had a posture of, I have questions and I'm eager to find answers. Thank you, preacher man Paul, but don't mind if I double check. And actually this is applauded in the New Testament. As a beautiful way for people to grow and learn. You should never have blind faith where there's a professional holy man standing in front saying, thus saith the Lord. And you say, well, the Lord's anointed has spoken, so I believe it. No, we want you to be engaged here. Bible open, being engaged, not just blindly believing something, but knowing the reasons why you believe it. My goal is not to teach us what to think, but rather how to think and how to think Jesusly. And how to read the Bible Jesusly. It's okay to run the ramp of reason before you take the leap of faith. It's okay to run the ramp of reason before you take the leap of faith. Now there are times in life as you follow Jesus, well God will ask you to take a step of faith, and it may not make sense. And if you're certain that's God calling you, do it. Jump, leap, and God will get you. God will catch you. But you don't need to turn off reason or intellect. Let's love God with our minds. Number three on your notes is this. Be honest enough about your doubts to bring you to greater faith. Be honest enough about your doubts to bring you to greater faith. Just before the Great Commission in Matthew 28, right? Just before Jesus says to his disciples, therefore go into all the world and preach the good news, baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, and surely I am with you even to the end of the age. Right before he says that, look at verse 16. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. What? Some doubted? Why would Matthew include this? If the point of your book is that Jesus is the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior of the world that everyone's been waiting for, why, when you reach the crescendo after the resurrection, when he's going to ascend into heaven, why would you say they worshiped him, but some doubted? Doesn't that ruin the moment? Doesn't it undermine everything you're saying in the story? When Matthew tells us that some of Jesus' followers doubted, doesn't it undermine uh, the story, or is it just a reflection of how people actually are? If the disciples... After the resurrection of the Son of God, had doubts. I think it's okay if we do. I think it's okay. John Ortberg, uh, super helpful in helping me wrestle through this concept of doubt. Um, he's a famous pastor and author. There I go, name dropping, I'm sorry. Um, Denzel Washington told me that never name drop, okay? Never name drop, it's unbecoming. But doubt is a part of the human condition. Part of what it means to be human is that there is no escape from doubt. When I got married, there was no doubt-free guarantee that she was the right one. I knew I married up because my wife told me I married up. (laughs) No, all men marry up, okay? All men marry up. Many people ask me, when did you know for sure she was the one? When did you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that she was the one for you? I got that, as a, as a youth pastor, I got that question all the time because everybody thinks they're in love in high school and they're going to marry their prom date. You know what I tell them? When did I know beyond a shadow of a doubt? When I said I do before God and my family and friends. When I pledged my love and fidelity and life to her till death do us part. If you want a doubt-free existence, you chose the wrong species to be a part of, okay? It's innate to the human experience. Look at Jude 22. Be merciful to those who doubt. Second Corinthians 5, 7. We live by faith, not by sight. See, when we think about faith, we often think that, that doubt is the opposite of faith, right? We got faith and we got doubt. And actually, it's not. Jesus here in Corinthians doesn't tell us we live by faith, not by doubt. It says we live by faith, not by sight. Doubt isn't the opposite of faith. Knowledge is. Knowing is. Here it appears that seeing something or knowing it in the physical sense is actually the opposite of faith. Does this leave room for a faith that has any doubts? As long as you have faith, you will have doubts. Let's say that I have a $5 bill in my hand, okay? $5 bill, maybe, I don't know. Who has faith that I have a $5 bill in my hand? Raise your hand. Who has faith? I see that hand there, brother. Is there anybody else who says, yes, I, I, I believe that I have faith. Okay, I see your hand. All right, now let me destroy your faith, little man. Let me destroy your faith by telling you, and showing you that I, in fact, do have a $5 bill in my hand. Now, why do I say destroy his faith? Because once he knows, it doesn't take faith anymore. When you, faith is not seeing, it's knowing. For some people, faith is living without a shadow of a doubt, but when all faith is, when all doubt is removed, when there is no place for faith, only knowledge exists. The Bible doesn't say we live by knowledge. Rather, we live by faith. Now, faith is rewarded, so here you go, big guy. There you go. Now, suppose I have $1,000 in my hand. Who believes, okay? I see that hand. Hallelujah. Sinners, sinners. Faith of a child. Lord Tennyson said this, There lies more faith in honest doubt than in half their creeds. There lies more faith in honest doubt than in half the creeds. The Fresno Fair is coming up. Love the fair. Love the fair. One of the things I love at the fair is the carnival-style games. Uh, you know the game with uh, the big hammer? And then you launch it onto that thing and pew, goes to the top. Oh, I love that game. Super strong. Often often we equate faith with certainty. Like th- th- there's a certainty meter, and if we, can, if we can hit the hammer strong enough, if we could just be certain enough to hit the top, then God's really gonna answer our prayers. Then God's really gonna give us what we want. If we can get our certainty meter up to the top, then God's gonna answer our prayers. In Mark 9, there's this boy who's demon-possessed and his father is talking with Jesus. And in speaking about whether the father believes this, that God can heal his son, the father tells Jesus, I do believe, help me with my unbelief. I love that prayer. I do believe, help me with my unbelief. Faith, doubt. Jesus heals the child of this doubting dad, not because of his great faith, but because of his little faith. Jesus is the portrait of God. He never condemns doubt. Rather, in speaking of faith, he says if you have the faith of a mustard seed, little tiny baby seed, if you just got little bit of mustard faith faith, you can move mountains. Mustard faith, mustard seed faith isn't gonna move your certainty meter up. Okay, that's not going to score big at the Fresno Fair. That's the kind of faith God understands that we have, that we need. We don't put our faith in faith, we put our faith in God. We don't put our faith in prayer, we put our faith in God. If prayer becomes your good luck charm, if I just do this right, it becomes an idol they say there are three situations where people pretend to be somebody they're not. In America, three situations. The first is when we enter a fancy hotel lobby. We all just start to pretend like we're fancy as well. Okay? The second is when we go to a car dealership and we start talking to the dealers and the salespeople. We pretend like we're somebody else. And the final is... Sunday mornings, when we walk into church, we pretend to be somebody we're not. God doesn't want your charade. He just wants your honesty. He just wants you to be authentic. He just wants you to be real. We're going to get real this morning. I want to invite Stephen the band up. One of my favorite comedies is Groundhog Day, Bill Murray. Okay? Great movie. Great movie. It's a make-believe story about a weatherman named Phil Connors. He's got a bad attitude, worse manners, and a razor-sharp tongue. He's reporting on Groundhog Day from a small town that he cared little about, Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, and he didn't care for pretty much anybody. But he did have his eye on this very attractive producer, Andy McDowell. And after the shoot. He couldn't wait to get out of town because of the bad weather, and to his horror, he woke up the next day, and he discovered that he'd woken up to yesterday. He met the same people, did the same things, said the same things, and ended the the, the day on a souring note, where he had to start it all over again the next day. He tried many ways to beat the system. He even kidnaps Punxsutawney Phil, the groundhog, and drives him off a cliff. Each day, waking up to the same song, to the same alarm clock, in the same bed, on the same day. Since he was going nowhere, he decided he wanted to woo this producer that he was attracted to. And so he starts to interview her and grill her and get to say all these questions, knows what she likes, knows what she doesn't like. And so he each time he tries to get to this perfect moment, and at the end of the day, she sees through his charade and she slaps him. And the movie shows slap after slap after Slap. He can never break through in this relationship. No matter how much he knows all these secrets that begin to draw her to him, at the end she sees through the charade and she slaps him. Until he gave up trying to be who he was not. So he began to learn new things like playing the piano. He changed his attitude and he began to just enjoy the town and even the weather that he hated so much. When that happened, the producer fell in love with the new Phil Connors. The weather cleared up and it was a new day. He stopped pretending to be something he's not, and he actually started to become the person he was pretending to be. Don't pretend, become. Don't pretend to be in a life-giving relationship with Jesus. Be in a life-giving relationship with Jesus. Don't pretend that you love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Begin to love him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with everything inside of you. Don't pretend, become. Don't spend your life pretending to be a deeply committed follower of Jesus. Become that. God is calling us in that step of faith. No matter who you are, you may have some doubts, that's okay. That's okay. Jeremiah twenty nine thirteen. you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. You, God is to be found by you. Even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of doubts, even in the midst of my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Somehow, way, when we vent to God from the deepest parts of who we are, it shifts our hearts to something greater than ourselves. When David questions God, those, those psalms of God, where are you? God, you're piercing me with your arrows. God, you're not living up to your end of the bargain. Those same psalms somehow, some way, end in praise. God, you're a jerk and you're distant. And at the end, you're my refuge, my tower of strength. There's something about being vulnerable with God that draws us to something bigger than ourselves. Sometimes in the middle of suffering, doubt and questions, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Can, can, it can turn into my God, my God, you love me. God, I pray in Jesus' name that for those in this place that are feeling forsaken by you now would be able to open up their hearts to you, bear their soul, and God, would you meet them where they are, at the bottom of the pit, nearly dead, buried. Would you meet them there, God? Would you meet us there? God, I pray that we wouldn't pretend that we would become. I pray, God, that my God, my God, why have you forsaken me can turn into my God, my God, I can't believe you love me. So God, we rebuke religiosity. We we rebuke the masks we wear, not just in public, but the masks we wear before you.